Hello, everyone watching and listening. Good morning from France this time, and welcome back to the Free Radical podcast, episode number 11. So this is your host, Swami Padmanabha. I'm here today, honored and thrilled to be the company of a new friend and spiritual accomplice, I will say, and also Sufi practitioner, scholar, sculptor, and very sweet human being for what I can tell you, and Patrick Beldia. So Patrick, thank you so much for joining. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me as your guest. I look forward to it. Thank you, Patrick. So let me share a few words regarding Patrick's bio before we start officially. So Patrick Beldio is a scholar of comparative religion and theology. Some of his areas of academic research and teaching are interreligious studies, comparative theology, Hindu-Christian relations, interfaith dialogue, religion and visual culture, religion and gender, with a focus on Franciscan spirituality, the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo Ashram and Meher Bab and the Christi lineage in the West. He has also volunteered with many service projects, including Francis and the Schools, which provides material, psychological, and spiritual support to children on the margins. Patrick currently teaches at the University of Scranton in the Theology and Religion Department, and he is a professional sacred sculptor with a studio at the Franciscan Monastery in Washington, D.C. His sculptures are in private and public collection across the USA. So here to begin with, I share a brief link for those who would like to know more about Patrick's work, both scholarly and his art presentations. So you here you have the link for those who are only listening. The link is reunionstudios.com. So personally, regarding how I got to meet Patrick Baldio, uh, I think I came to know, yeah, I came to know about Patrick from another common friend of us and scholar, Jeffrey Long, uh, who, from whom I came to know, he, he endorsed my first book, Jeffrey. So I came to know Jeffrey from my first book, and then we continue in touch. And recently sharing some words about my second book, Radical Personalism, to, to Jeffrey, uh, he... And, and especially some points in the book on theological cross-pollination, Jeff recommended that I contact Patrick. Uh, and so Jeff was kind enough to organize a Zoom call where the three of us met and shared very beautifully. Uh, and simultaneously, interesting, at that time, Patrick, maybe you may remind you were invited to Ilya Delia's podcast. And, yes. after, and after you, I was the next guest to her podcast. So there was too much <laughs> synchronicity to, to pay attention to that. So in that way, yeah. I also listened to the podcast. I came to know more about, about Patrick. And of course, I continue. I look forward to continue knowing yeah. more about him today. Mm -hmm. Me so too. yeah, today, well, as you may know, this uh, free radical podcast somehow revolves considerably around the contents of my recent book, Radical Personalism. So I always love to begin these episodes by asking every guest whether they know <laughs> about my book or not, but to share a few words about what the term radical personalism means to you in this case. So please enlighten mm. Patrick. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. Um, I look forward to learning from you actually, uh, uh, I guess because I've just begun to read your work um, and understand the, you know, the kind of perspective you're bringing. Um, but I guess when I, when I hear that, 
I hear about, I hear, I kind of think about um, both the tradition of Sri Aurobindo and the mother mm. and the way in which they think about the person. Mm. And then I also think about my Sufi practice and the Sufi tradition I belong to and Meher Baba and his teachings about really, you know, it, I guess the growth of, of all of the universe is really one of personal growth or the individuation of the soul through different mm -hmm. forms, first through evolution, then through reincarnation, then through a spiritual path that leads back to the one true person. Mm. And uh, I think we're living in a time, and I think you write about this beautifully, um, in which you know, the yogas uh, and the spiritual practices, monastic practices in the West, maybe the, the approach was to ascend um, the mm. planes of consciousness to mm -hmm. unite kind of more and more with um, different levels of, uh, of consciousness to, to achieve finally either a, a monistic union or a union in difference or however one sort of experiences that. Um, and that this um, union sort of maintains a transcendence above the body and the earth. And you write so beautifully about, no, there's that maybe that, that could be a place to begin. But what if we were to bring down the accomplishment, the beauty, that the truth, the love down into our bodies from those planes of consciousness and into the earth to mm -hmm. affect a real change individually and socially and also cosmically um, at the material level to um, so there's a descent of consciousness that happens um, that's possible maybe now in a way that you're talking about at least that's really that's how the Sri Aurobindo ashram talks about it that's how Mayor Baba talks about it that we're living in a time that it's possible to to manifest the spirit in our bodies in a way that's unique and lovely and beautiful. And, uh, and so to become a radical, I don't know, ra radical personality, a rad radical personal personalism means to me, I guess, in this new time, uh, a bringing together of matter and spirit that mm. has not been possible before. Mm. Uh, maybe people individually have accomplished, but, but at a communal level, at a global level, um, where we're both honoring the, the individual sort of uh, localized in personalities of people and groups, but also honoring the radical unity that underneath the river Abajo or underneath mm -hmm. <laughs> everything is, is flowing. Hmm. So um, those are initial thoughts, I guess. Yeah. Thank you so much. That doesn't sound initial at all. Pretty elaborate thing. <laughs> and I appreciate your, your point of, on, on how the, there is some, I agree, there's some type of side gaze in nowadays that, that it's inviting us to reach that not so much on an individual level alone, but on a collective one, like maybe it has never happened before. So mm -hmm. yeah, I feel very thrilled and excited to somehow be part of that uh, generational invitation if you will no? yeah yeah <laughs> so, thank you so much for for the idea of your version of radical personalism i always humbled and enlightened by receiving every guest and every person that i meet that they know about the idea 
I tell them, tell me what's radical personalism for you. And there's always overwhelmingly astonishing and beautiful. So thank you. Mm -hmm. So today's topic with, uh, with Patrick, the title of today's episode is Mystery as a Living Art. Uh, and somehow we chose that title since on one side, Patrick is a very talented artist. As you will see in his website, if you will. And, and the word, therefore, the word art in our title connects in one way there. But also, yeah. Patrick is a scholar and practitioner who embraces uh, mystical traditions such as Sufism or also Hinduism and Christianity. So in connection to the mystical side, we have the word mystery, which is very connected to the notion of <laughs> mystical. So putting all this together, mysticism, mystery, and art, our idea was to speak not merely about art, but also about mystery as not merely an art, but a living art. No, mm -hmm. so the word living also adds to the equation. So let me read a few seconds, the, the particular corresponding section from the book, from Radical Personalism, in connection to this, we'll, which will it's found for those who have the printed version in pages 127 and 128. And the section is called Radical Unknowing, which is a, a part a section so important that I consider to make a whole separate chapter in the book, chapter 12. So it says like this. <clears throat> in general, present-day Gaudiya Vaishnavism seems to be stuck in what we may call an overdose of confidence or a profound inability to deal with uncertainty, liminality, and paradox, all of which create a necessary displacement from our comfort zone. Instead of discarding mystery by claiming a perfect understanding, we are invited to harmonize and include all contradictions and dilemmas in higher synthesis as part of our inner project. We call this radical unknowing. Mm -hmm. So this above section, and again, the whole separate chapter that I wrote about inspired for today's episode, Mysterious Living Art. So I don't know, Patrick, if you have any ideas mm -hmm. to like kickstart sure. after what we just read. Ah, it's interesting because just yesterday, so as you mentioned, I'm teaching at the University of Scranton. And just yesterday I was teaching in one of my classes. It's on uh, the introduction to Catholic theology. And I had them read something on uh, Karl Rahner, who you mm -hmm. may know, yeah. uh, very important uh, 20th century, you know, Catholic theologian, Jesuit. And we were reading a section um, about what he said about mystery, holy mystery. He called it holy mystery. Hmm. And I wanted my students to understand how radical this notion was in the Catholic Church, especially when he was writing in the 1960s. Hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. during Vatican II and the great changes happening with the Catholic Church then, um, that he was really explaining that we really do have to go into a radical unknowing. We really do have to let go of a certitude that is the very opposition to real faith, the hmm. opposition to real love and hope, hmm. um, that to let go of our certainty and to be courageous enough to enter the darkness of unknowing that really the divine is always asking us to, inviting us into. And certainly in the Catholic tradition, Jesus is, is uh, inviting so wonderfully through difficult, but, but I think we, we all don't want to be invited. We don't want to kind of receive the invitation because it means picking up our cross in the language of Christianity, of picking up that, the, those places of opposition within us and within in the world, that we, it'd be safe 
just not to deal with. And, um, mm -hmm. and our mind wouldn't be able to control them. But our mind wants to control them, wants certainty, wants to plan, and wants to know beforehand how it's going to all turn out. Yeah. And uh, so I think Ron, was, he was just that. So my students and I were discussing some of this. A lot of them really come from Catholic backgrounds where they were told all the right answers mm. and, uh, and really aren't, you know, it's not a living experience mm. of knowledge, a radical and where they've been pushed. So I'm inviting them to sort of embrace their own, their own darkness, their own oppositions in life so that they would be for themselves discover on the other side, an incredible embrace. Mm. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Ch I'm challenging them. Wow. Sounds exciting. I would like to be a student in your class. <laughs> so, envious, so envious of your students. And yeah, okay. since you mentioned Carl Runner, I remember I quoted him in my book when he says, like the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not be at all. <laughs> that's the best. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. That's so important. It sounds like extreme, but actually it's, it's what provides real sustainability for us and, as individuals and as a collective to enter into the mystery and, and be willing to coexist with that we cannot control, basically. Yeah. And, and, and something that comes to mind because, okay, today we'll be talking most mostly about mystery as an art, but you are an artist. Uh, uh -huh. I personally consider myself some form of artist i'm a musician and i'm a writer and yeah i learned some drawing and so on not, uh. not to compare myself to you at all but, uh -huh. <laughs> but i feel identified with that designation so to say uh so my point is okay we will speak about mystery and art but also I'll, we can share if you want some words uh, about art as mystery as well no because for me art uh, how to say uh, for me the the unknown shines through the productions of great artists, so to mm. say. Or for me, uh, the, the real artist is always articulating, so to say, uh, what lies in the unknown, what lies outside of the comfort zone. An actual yeah. artist is someone who is willing to adventure into <laughs> that area. And, and as I like to put in my book, they, they transform chaos into order. No? Yeah. They make that unknown intelligible for us. No? Maybe... They, how to say they will trans they will transform what we do not understand into what at least we can see. Now, it yeah. doesn't mean we understand it, but at least they are presenting it in a way that okay, that's in front of us. Yeah, and, how and, lovely. Yeah, and probably I'm thinking even artists themselves when they are really engrossed and engaged into their whatever art they are embracing, they themselves are not fully understanding what's going on yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. they, are they are dealing you you may tell me your testimony but they are dealing with mystery so they are contending with something they do not understand basically because i will say if they, if that's not happening they are not real artists truly they may be yeah. perform, performers basically but but not, not artists <laughs> you're yeah you're naming my experience for sure mm. in the studio uh yeah I mean, I think the, isn't the, the next thing you say that you read from, you, you go right into Hindu aesthetics. Sorry, you what? Say well, you, the passage you read from us on radical unknowing, mm. right underneath it, you, you, you go right into Hindu aesthetics. Mm -hmm. You say, in Hindu aesthetics, there is no possibility of the experience of rasa, mm. the highest refinement of sacred mm. emotion, without first having passed through the, the holy tunnel 
of Chamakat, uh, Chamakat, yeah, yeah, or holy bewilderment, which I I had not heard that term. Of course, I know Rasa and studied that. Um, yeah, yeah, we have a very studies. famous we have a famous line one liner in our tradition, which is Rasa Sar Chamatkar, which basically means the essence Sar of Rasa is Chamatkar. Mm. Yeah, so astonishment, right. the essence of the experience of Rasa is astonishment. So that's so yeah. tight art, I will say, right? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I, I was, so I went on Manya Williams uh, Sanskrit Dictionary and looked it up and mm. had some fun with that. And mm. uh, of course, you know, my dissertation work was on Sri Aurobindo and he was a poet and he describes his own creative process being so much about what you're saying. Mm. And I related to it as a sculptor. Um, he was a poet and he wrote a wonderful book called The Future Poetry which I highly recommend as a way to sort of, I think if you, he wrote 30, well, I think right now there are 36 to maybe 38 volumes of Sri Aurobindo's works now that are, you know, published. Hmm. And if you just enter one of them, you sort of enter all of them, but from a different angle. Hmm. But this is through the angle of aesthetics and his creative process. And of course his poem Savitri is um, epic. And I think, has been an inspiration for me. It, it really sort of is a poem that is putting before us um, a, a, an incredible symbolic myth that it really is the truth that is at the heart of all hearts and so forth. But it also is a record of his own yoga, of his own kind of, he said he, he wrote poetry to ascend the planes of consciousness and uh, so every time he sort of wrote the poem Savitri over his life, he began in 1916 mm. and he wrote it for the rest of his life. And he died in 1950 mm -hmm. and he was writing it up to the almost the day he died and he sort of didn't finish. But we have what we have is the best sort of version before mm -hmm. he passed, which is an, an amazing version. Um, but he would start over every time he would sort of get to a point where the poem helped him achieve a certain level of mastery of knowledge. He would go through the, the this, uh, uh, you know, sacred emotion and holy bewilderment, and then he would push through to another level of, of understanding and, yeah. and love and vision. And then he would realize, oh my gosh, the horizon was pushed further back and he would wow. have a whole other terrain to, yeah. to explore. Yeah. And so just like the Nautilus shell, you know, sort of pushing out to the next uh, chamber. And so he'd write the poem again from that perspective. Mm. And then it was another expression of the poem Savitri. So he did that about nine times throughout his life. I related so much to this because my each sculpture in my own um, experience has been a, a self-expression, something to express myself. And then on the other side of that, when you finish, you've become a new person and you aren't the same that you were before. And you've, you've gained knowledge, you've gained understanding but then you've, you've stationed yourself at another place of ignorance, but it's another level above the previous one, but you're now at another level of ignorance, another level of uh, lack of love, lack of, of uh, you just can see ahead of you like, oh my gosh, there's this other territory to, to master, to explore, to learn from. Mm -hmm. And so the next sculpture becomes another medium to do that, uh -huh. that kind of thing. So for me, my whole life has been that way um, in terms of my art practice. And the most important piece, I guess, is on my website uh, called The New Being mm -hmm. that I did over a 10-year um, period. 
And that was so beyond me. Like I did that in collaboration with my Sufi teacher. And um, because of her level of vision, uh, I was able to accomplish much more than I would have done by myself. And so I'm, I feel like I, I didn't overpass myself in doing that. In a certain way, I've still, mm. I still have more to explore hmm. in that sculpture. I have more hmm. to learn. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder how, how do you do and Because, you, of course, you officially finish a particular work and then start another, but how much you feel it's finished as you, in connection to what you were mentioning, no? Because there's yeah. the example of Aurobindo. He finished the poetry, and again, the finishing of the poetry took him to the awareness that there is a new layer to explore of that uh -huh. same poetry. So it, technically speaking, it's uh -huh. less finished than before. <laughs> yes, Every yes. time you, you think you're finishing, it's more and more unfinished. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I was just thinking about that because at least personally, when I'm writing a book or something, it's just I have to force myself to, okay, this is finished, <laughs> it's over, it has to be published. If not, that's right. It will, it will be always changing, which in itself may be a, it's an, an interesting uh -huh. experiment, as you were mentioning, the example of Aurobindo, never finishing that's any right. book and just... That was his intention. <laughs> That's right. He's like, I'm not going to make this a thing, a finished product. This is more about the process, really. Uh -huh. But the product we have, of course, is a record of that process, and it's it's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I yeah. appreciate the point of not, yeah, not being so comfortable, because generally we are so comfortable with closure instead of disclosure. Yeah. Like fini finishing mm -hmm. the product okay it's done finished and an actual real art and real mystery is like a constant opening of potential and possibility instead of mm -hmm. this is it finished controlled so on and so forth and, and i really right. love what, what you mentioned that the more you advance in your in your inner world by engaging in art you realize like deeper levels of your ignorance, so to say. And, and I generally, I mentioned that, okay, progress means we are committing higher and higher mistakes every time. Yes, <laughs> mistakes. That's so important. Failures, weakness. Oh my gosh, crucial. Mm. I'm, I'm always sort of trying to tell my students that uh, failure is the, uh, is the only way we learn. That's mm. how else do we succeed mm. except through failure? Yeah. And that's really what my studio practice has been about is, is um, it's a record of failure. And each, each sculpture is really a, a, an object of my failure to express myself, even though it might have been, it, it's a record also of, of par, a partial success. And mm. maybe that's a more positive spin. It's a partial success. Each, each one of these sculptures mm. is that. And what a wonderful thing. And it can be a gift to uh, the audience, the viewer, the reader of your book. Um, and, and because they might be at a different place or find themselves needing exactly what you share through the... Mm. The artwork and yet you you are in another place or in a different place and you just need other lessons yeah that are yeah. next um, yeah. yeah but failure yeah. is so huge and so important yeah and, and I, I love what you mentioned like acknowledging those mistakes uh and, and and whatever work you are presenting is a testimony to your failure so to say actually that's what brings success to the work as well and the, the awareness yes. The awareness of that dimension is warranting the actual success of the of the experience, so to say. Because generally we think the opposite. I will be successful the less mistaken I am, or the less I have to acknowledge that. And and, and I yes. as I try to put in my book, so important not so much to traumatize failure, but to normalize failure 
as 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 crucial for learning yeah. and progress, basically. And I think, That's yeah, art art is so much about that. Yes, truly is. Mm-hmm. I um, I gosh, I mean, I I I look forward to writing a book on the new being sculpture, that ten year project, and it mm-hmm. will be a book about my failure that mm-hmm. I experienced all through it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that Murshida, our, our Sufi teacher, challenged me to do when she commissioned me to do that sculpture was to be not only the designer, the fabricator, the person to make it physically, but to be the project manager, mm-hmm. which meant um, doing all that one does at the business end, you know, mm-hmm. creating a budget, hiring the subcontractors, and then firing if need be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, helping people to work together, subcontractors to talk to one another. If there are fights or difficulties, conflicts that happen, to manage those. So Integrate. it was an incredible yeah. learning process. I failed miserably at all of those things. <laughs> I'm an artist, you know, by training. And so to do those sorts of business uh-huh. and or personnel kind of things, budget, the practical everyday uh how do, you know, is a wonderful challenge that Murshida said, basically, this is how your sadhana, your spiritual practice is going to be bringing down these wonderful, lovely, artistic, spiritual, mystical into, okay, how do we deal with a contract in which we agreed on this amount of money, but now you want more? And mm-hmm. how do we, with love, <laughs> with care, with, you know, managing that with also, uh, I'm responsible for this budget, responsible for the people who donated their their savings their life savings to this project Mm. Mm. how do i manage that uh and and be responsible for that boy uh 10 years of of uh, pressure like that was created uh uh, matured me in a way i would have never uh it would have taken a hundred years but this matured me in 10. Um, thank you for sharing that bigger picture and context because some of us i already saw it but some of the audience will look at your at your piece and they may not perceive i mean they may perceive if they have the eye but they may not know all this particular yeah. background that you are sharing and that surely helps to to increase the value of the of the work and to appreciate the the actual work beyond the the physicality of it no yeah so. that's right so much goes in that's so practical and so uh-huh. uh yeah so so human yeah, acknowledging the messiness and integrating it and Oof. making making it part, making yes. it a work of art. Messiness was, as a work of art. Yeah, it was nothing but a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that created feel, that beauty. I can feel the level of realization when saying those words coming from you. <laughs> so, uh, also, Patrick, relation to to the idea of of art as as mystery before going to mystery as art. So to say something that comes to my mind is this famous quote from Dostoevsky. He will say like, beauty will save the world. Ooh, and, I loved that. So, yeah, yeah I, that. I love it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And of course, art is generally connected to beauty. But as we mentioned, also art has to do with entering uh-huh. the realm of mystery. So uh, for me, it's important to connect all the things, you know, like the, the courage yeah. of the artist entering the unknown, uh, extracting a new sense of purpose, so to say, to keep life meaningful yeah. <laughs> for, for all of us. Uh, that's the dharma of the artist, so to say, the beauty. Yes. Um, and by, by, by venturing himself, herself into that realm with such courage, bringing this new sense of purpose to the world, this new sense of beauty, 
wow, that will save the world. Now, I like like to flesh out this quote from Dostoevsky in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah. And how in that sense, all of us are in one way or another invited to be artists in the sense of yes. invited to venture into the unknown with courage, extract some new sense of meaning and purpose and offer that as a gift for the Correct. world. Survival, so to say, or salvation, basically. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I think we've been talking about these very things so far. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that beauty is what we've been talking about. Um, mm -hmm. I was obsessed with beauty since um, 1990 when I was studying in Rome as a sophomore in college. And at the time, I was at the University of Notre Dame. I was um, I wanted to go to that school so bad because it was uh, as a Catholic growing up, uh, and I was growing up in North Carolina, where it was a southern, this the Bible Belt, as you know, you you live there. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to go to a Catholic place, and so I had the opportunity as a sophomore to go to to Rome, and I knew I wanted to be an artist, and I was my imagination was just exploding when mm -hmm. I got there because of the beauty of the churches, the sculptures, the paintings, the history, the Italian yeah. Renaissance the Baroque, the Mannerist, all of that was just over the top. And I was taking a class uh, with um, a professor on Italian literature. And she knew of my love of art and visual arts. And I was always, you know, sketching while I was taking notes. And we were studying Petrarch and Boccaccio and Dante. Mm -hmm. And oh, fantastic, right? And she asked me a question that to this day, I think about a lot. And she says, um, she asked me, Patrick, do you desire beauty? And I thought, I don't know why. It just struck me to the core of my being at the time mm. as a little 19-year-old, 20-year-old. Mm. I think I turned 20 at, at that time. And so ever since, I, I've been wondering, you know, what, what is it? What is beauty and what do I desire? what is it that I desire that is beautiful? You know, it became mm. this obsession. Mm. And to this day, it's a question that's in front of me. Like, I feel like I have answered that question, but then again, there's a whole other horizon that's pushed back where I need to answer it. I need to ask it and answer it again. Mm. And, you know, it was my dissertation topic. It's been my spiritual practice, but you only, but we've been talking about how I think the messiness of the creative process both practically speaking and then also forming sculptures or drawings or, or writings that is the product at the end of the day, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but that the process is really one of transforming chaos into order, one of ugliness into beauty and one of, you know, death into life. So, and so forth. It's, you know, really it's the, it's the union of opposites, the work of uniting opposites to achieve another level of, of, knowledge and experience is a messy difficult process mm. and the artistic creative process is is that in mm. in, in spades yeah um, that's yeah. what comes to mind first mm -hmm. yeah and, and i think that's why i mean if one really appreciates the journey of whomever is willing to to enter into that space as we mentioned to to extract uh something from that and convert it in art and present it as a gift for humanity, those who appreciate that will be willing to. And that's why works of art are the most expensive artifacts in the whole planet, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say, because 
I mean, they are priceless in, in one sense yeah. because they re represent such a a voyage, you know, such a journey into a very unknown land that the real artist is willing to do. That you cannot, you can never pay enough. The beauty that comes from from the unknown in, in such a way, basically, you know, the, the, the epiphany that, that those real works will like represent for us like portals, basically. Yeah, that reminds me that that's pretty much what Sri Aurobindo said. If you don't mind me re re reading this, he said, "If art's service is but to imitate nature." then burn all the picture galleries and let us have instead photographic studios. Mm. It is because art reveals what nature hides that a small picture is worth more than all the jewels of the millionaires and the treasures of the princes. That idea of uh, because art reveals what nature hides, mm. that's the true value. And for me, it's like, well, what is it revealing? What is it hiding? Becomes for me the obsession. Uh, and how can my work sort of pull back those those veils mm -hmm. but at the same time i think it's a, the author the, the author and the artist's uh role to to, to maintain the hiddenness mm -hmm. to uh to both it's 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 withdrawing but it's coming forward at the same time mm. this yeah. truth this beauty yeah that reminds me what dietrich bonhoeffer will say like the duty of the ah. he won't say that the artist in this case he was speaking about theologian but the duty of the theologian is to keep the mystery as mystery <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. well, and instead, right. instead of trying to solve the mystery, because generally yeah. we we are obsessed with again with closure, with solving instead of keeping yes. the mystery op open, so to say. You know. So, so I think yeah, our artists maybe can maybe able to to touch one drop one point in that infinite line and ex extract it and share it with us to to give purpose and meaning. But that doesn't mean that the artist will think or say i have solved the mystery that's it but it's just like the epiphany that came to that person and that person is extending that to the world somehow but, uh -huh. but the mystery remains as mystery that's my point huh? yes it does <laughs> but i i wonder though this is something we could talk about more is that it remains mystery to a part of the being mm -hmm. that is not capable the mind which is what mm -hmm. i'm getting at the mind is not capable of of understanding the mystery Mm -hmm. But what there is a part of our being, I think, that becomes one with it and is and then the mystery sort of possesses us. We mm -hmm. don't possess it or mm -hmm. we don't sort of put it in a box, but it, mm -hmm. it sort of then becomes uh, enfolding us. And therefore mm -hmm. we join it and then it, it becomes knowable. It becomes revealed fully, mm -hmm. but not to our mind. It really becomes fully revealed to our heart. Uh, this is something. I'm still trying to work out language for, but mm. um, but I feel like there is a, a there is this progress that's maybe asymptotic that you never 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 really get to the the union. But mm. I I, th I want to say that there is a union, mm -hmm. but that union is much more than we think it is, and the mind thinks it is that it's um, it reveals the fullness, the total, the complete, but it's so. It's inapproachable with the mind, but it's approachable with these higher faculties within us. Yeah, I, uh, I, I yeah. totally, I totally agree that there is a way to, as you mentioned, to be embraced by the mystery. Actually, in our particular tradition, Krishna, God Himself, is yeah. described in many sections of Scripture as interestingly, Krishna means the all-attractive, going yes. back to the notion of beauty, but at the same time, He's described as mystery personified. 
So mm. again, the, the two notions of mystery and beauty are are intertwined between the two, and and of mm -hmm. course, there is the the possibility, the hope, the experience of of entering in connection with that mystery fully, but also as I think you may agree that the nature of that mystery is eternally evolving and ever unfolding. So in that sense, we can never uh, say I got the mystery fully and there's no, it's no longer mystery. It's, I, I already know everything about it, but because it's in constant unfolding. unfolding. And so in that sense, I will say that keeps us humble, even while we are having that full display of, of the mysterious in, in our own hearts. So I want, well, this is what I wonder. I wonder, you know, if, if there's a humility, I guess, even in becoming knowledgeable about it all, um, mm -hmm. that once one becomes one with God, um, it's not possible to be prideful because there is no, mm -hmm. there is no pride in God. Mm -hmm. There's a projection going on. I think if we think, well, if I become God and then I, then I think I know it all. I'm going to become sort of not humble anymore. Hmm. I wonder, it's like, well, no, when you become God, you become God. And that means the most humble, hmm. the most serving, hmm. uh, going underneath anyone. Hmm. Oh, one of my merchants always used to said, understanding means to stand under people. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you really understand, then you really do stand under them. You really do serve them. You really do bow to them. Maybe yeah. in ways that are silent, they don't know. Yeah. Um, but to understand it all would be to stand under it all. Yeah. One of Maybe. my teachers, Silasila Maraj, will say when you reach what he would call the spiritual world or the highest level of consciousness, he say, nobody is to serve you, but you are to serve everyone. Like ah. implying, like everyone will be serving you, but you won't be expecting that. You will be just standing under everything and everyone and, and willing to. Mm -hmm. give yourself no? because everything will be made of such a substance that will be just worthy of your yeah. full giving and, and as you mentioned there won't be a place for for pride at least in our tradition we'll consider that the the fruit the ultimate fruit of bhakti or devotion and love of god is is just a gift we may call yeah. it costless grace so we can yeah. never be we can never be proud about an a costless gift that has given to us unconditionally. Right, no? right, that, right. That's a good gift. So the very nature of unconditional love like implies full the fullest humility, basically. No? Uh -huh. If we really, and we were talking yesterday, here we had a lecture in France about, because someone may say, okay, God is already loving you unconditionally. So that may, someone say, well, that may take you to be lazy and relaxed and compla complacent. He's already loving me unconditionally, but not. If you really understand what's, what does it mean, that will move you to such a place that you will give yourself in reciprocation in the most humble mm -hmm. possible way because there's so much coming and it's not that even maybe we made something to deserve it. It's already there. <laughs> so, yeah, if yeah. we properly understand that the dynamics is... There's no place for actual pride. If, you, if there's proper understanding of how yeah. reality operates... And right. there's no evaporates. evaporates. And you know what also I think evaporates is humility. You know, <laughs> any of the opposite, any opposite or any kind of um, experience of any of the opposites evaporates. And there's sort of just, there is just this natural spontaneous mm -hmm. service, service mm -hmm. and devotion and, and knowledge, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so Patrick, regarding, we, we talk a, few, a little bit on, on art as mystery. So regarding mystery as art, some yeah, different perspective yeah. on the topic. We already mentioned uh, some words about Chamatkar and astonishment, but I'd like to invite you to also share some thoughts in connection. You already did, but a little bit more if possible. Yeah. The idea of certitude, because the opposite of mystery somehow is certitude and certain type of sometimes addiction we may have to certitude uh -huh. no, addiction to have to be certain of things and and you i think properly mentioned that's kind of the opposite of faith yeah. uh, because i remember father richard Rohr, he always says that and i love it he he will ask his audience so yeah. what's the opposite of faith and generally yeah. people may say <laughs> doubt or something and he will say no the opposite of faith is certainty no, <laughs> yeah, I like love he, that. He throws them to a pit of uncertainty by saying that. <laughs> That's right. He does. He's so good. I'm so glad you're friends with him and what a mm. service he's giving to the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. he makes this point over and over again. You know, how faith actually has to do with doubt, proper doubt, healthy doubt, the nourishment yeah. that keeps us open, mystery. And he will describe faith as being patient with mystery. No, like That's developing right. this like patience yeah. and willingness to coexist with those things that are not fully certain yet and yeah okay yeah allow their unfolding in us so i don't know what you can share to us about that in your own mm -hmm. experience <laughs> i think you provide such wonderful advice for your listeners on this because at least the podcast i've seen you've talked about this and um Certainly, I think I, we're in full agreement with this. I, I guess I'm talking about this with my students a lot, that I, they're in a place of uncertainty in their lives, being freshmen or sophomores or whatever, or their seniors going off to get a job or go forward, that mm. trying to encourage them to be comfortable in that discomfort, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, to make friends with it, um, because and surrender, because that's really where we have to be able to surrender. Mm -hmm. that's the keynote i think of this process surrender and it's the keynote of the, the integral yoga of sri arbindo and the mother it's the keynote of uh, mir baba's um teaching and of course and i think they're well what teaching doesn't have it <laughs> yeah so, i'm just uh, thinking about my own tradition and your own tradition how crucial yeah, surrender is yeah, yeah of course in bhakti i mean goodness uh that's yeah. what it is i think um what, what, I mean, and that's the process of surrender when, when the ego wants to assert itself in the creative process as an artist and, and you, you're sort of facing this mystery, you're facing this unknown. Mm. And it could be um, maybe you're at the beginning of the process and you don't know what it is you want to make and you have this blank canvas or empty studio or you're in the middle and you sort of are stuck or you're at the end and you feel like, I'm not sure when to finish this. Mm. There is a surrender that has to happen every step of the way mm. um, to make to bring it to this conclusion, whatever that conclusion might be. Mm. Um, and so I think there has to be a surrender just every single moment. And so it's a constant letting go, a constant letting go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because then all of a sudden this this rush of feeling can come in, or a rush of thoughts, or a dream might happen. I've I've been especially gifted with dreams over in my sadhana over time for some reason it's been the way that god's communicated to me and where i've gotten to an impasse in my life and i've had to surrender or i've gotten really frustrated with a certain level of uncertainty and 
And I just said, okay, God, I'm going to surrender here. I'm going to just let it go. I'm going to stop chasing this. And then all of a sudden I feel something chasing me, but then I've got to like be open. Most recently, I suppose the most recent example of this, if this is helpful to listeners, is that my father passed away in 2019. Hmm. And I was not especially close to him, but we had a very fraught relationship. And so I had to go through a lot of counseling and coming to terms with with some pain and stuff like that um, growing up with him. Um, but when when he did pass, we, we said goodbye. And I could say with full-throated thankfulness how thankful I was to him and, and say that to him. Hmm. Um, and then when he passed, I was incredibly um, hit with grief. I thought, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so difficult, but it was so, super difficult. And then, of course, this was 2019. COVID hits a few months later. Mm-hmm. And I felt myself. And also, this was a few years after I finished the New Being sculpture. And that sculpture project really finished me. I was in a void. I was in mm-hmm. a dark spot of just not knowing what to do next, mm-hmm. not knowing who to be next. I was in mm-hmm. the darkness. I was in a cave. And I wanted to get out of that cave so bad. Mm. And then my, my father passed and it made it, it made the cave more in my face. Like I mm. could not deny this anymore. The, the divine mother was saying to me, I have you in a cave and I don't want you to leave it is mm. what I felt. Well, I had a good counselor tell me this. He says, I can, I can feel that you're in a cave and the, you know, the mother is keeping you and she wants to keep you there. And so I decided as a way to process this grief and this void that I felt in, in art um, was to go and do the, the um, spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius mm-hmm. of Loyola. Mm-hmm. I had started them years ago and I felt like I wanted to finish them. And it was just the thing. I, 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 had, I started it in 2020 and I finished a year later. So I did like the full on, you know, meeting with a spiritual director. And I asked my Mershita about it at the time. I was like, do you mind if I, what do you think about me doing this? Mm-hmm. For my own personal sadhana, she said that that sounds like a good idea. So it, I was able to bring my Catholic upbringing, my Sufi training, my Sufi experience, and the integral yoga of Sri Herbindo and the Mother. I was sort of, I mean, it was definitely focused on the Bible, reading the scriptures. Um, but you kind of there are four stages, and at the last stage, you're sort of meditating on the the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And you're meant to imagine yourself on the cross. You're meant to imagine yourself with him. And you're meant to imagine yourself being buried with him in the tomb. And then uh, meditating on all of that. And then meditating about exiting the tomb. Mm. And I was clear. I was not ready to exit. In my own meditation, it was so strong that I wanted to. I felt the resurrection. I felt, you know. I could meditate on that and and feel it within myself, but I couldn't feel that I was ready Mm. to leave that tomb with him, with Jesus. I was ready. I I needed to stay in that cave with, with him or with the the divine mother, with the earth. And um, because I was fighting it, fighting it. And now I was like, may I made friends with the darkness. I made friends with that cave and man, it felt good. It felt healing. And uh, I feel only now I'm sort of ready to, kind of come out of the cave, but it's little by little. I'm sort of peeking around the corners. Um, but I feel uh, so grateful to that period, hmm. uh, all of it. Um, 
for, <laughs> for sort of baking me, you know, in this oven or in this cage. Uh -huh. uh, wow. Well, I don't know if that gets to your, your question, but that's what comes to mind. No, that's so, beautiful. And I, to begin with, I deeply appreciate your vulnerability to open and share your own inner mm -hmm. journey and experience with your father and with all that you went through and the void you were after finishing your work. I mean, I can really empathize mm -hmm. in so many ways in my own journey with things you've shared, mm -hmm. even with the day that my own father passed away, similar to yours. Uh, uh. <laughs> and, and, and similarly to find myself a certain inner void after concluding some particular project. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, so, so important and important. Yeah, I, 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 I totally resonate with everything you mentioned, especially yeah, the idea of surrender as, as so crucial as entering the cave and, and staying there and allowing the cave to, as you mentioned, to bake you <laughs> and, and, and making friends with, with darkness. I mean, in, in our particular tradition, surrender is basically the the foundation, I mean, surrender is another way of speaking about what we are talking about today. Mm -hmm. And it is basically the the underlying, the stage on which we will perform, so to say, or sometimes we use the, the word lila to refer yeah. to the eternal, eternal drama, loving drama between love and, and the soul, the relationship that sometimes is called lila. So the stage on which that lila will be performed, it's made of surrender. Sometimes we will say ah. that poetically because the, the lila needs a very powerful foundation and stage because it's a very powerful thing that is going on there. So the stage, the soil <laughs> has to be made of, of surrender. Yeah. And, and surrender, ah. I, I really love your point of surrender being uh, a corresponding form of surrender for every particular moment. And it's not so much like one act performance. Yeah. No, because no, sometimes no. I've, I've heard this idea, okay, you surrender and that's it. Like if you do it once, and <laughs> there's no need for further surrender. And actually every single situation and challenge and chapter of my life is inviting me for a very unique uh, expression of surrender without end. Yeah. Uh, and, and the surrender may take, or, or the shelter that we are seeking, because sometimes we were talking yesterday in, in our lecture, Sometimes we try to surrender to the divine and we pray for, let's say, shelter. Um, but sometimes we also may have a very idealized idea of how the shelter should look like. <laughs> or even how the, <laughs> how the cave should look like. No? And, <laughs> and, and, and we were narrating one famous lila in our tradition, which is the Govardhan lila, where Krishna is, is, is like lifting a whole hill, very big hill that is now in Vrindavan in India with his little finger for a week uh, right. but the point is that the, the inhabitants of Brindavan of this sacred land go to Krishna begging for shelter but they are open that the shelter may look as Krishna likes to it's not that okay give me shelter in this way in this moment <laughs> uh, and sometimes yes. we, may, we, we may have this conditioned idea which is, again is some subtle form of addiction to certainty and control like God give me your mercy but that's how your mercy should look like, no? <laughs> and, and he will give real mercy, which is not how it should look like according to our criteria. But sometimes yes. he shows mercy and we immediately pray to him again, please give me mercy to protect me from this. And he will say, that was my mercy from your previous prayer. That's right. <laughs> so you are yeah. begging me protection from my own mercy that I'm sharing to you. <laughs> Beautiful. That's right. 
So it's embarrassing, it's messy, but that's where we are. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. This is, uh, you want me to undo what I have wished, what I have willed for you. Mm. You want mm. me to undo that? No. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, surrender. Again, yeah. surrender can take so many, yeah. so many forms, so many shapes. And as you mentioned, the cave and the darkness, there's no only one one shade of darkness or one type of cave Oof. there are unending ones so <laughs> that's yeah. right that's mm. right mm. yeah 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 so so the, yeah I, I really i really appreciated it the symbol of the cave we sometimes use the same uh, yes. expression in our tradition like prayers to krishna in his different forms and there's a famous prayer that he's described as a lion and it's like, may you roar in the cave of my heart. But, but the point is, for that to happen, first we have to be willing to enter the cave in itself. That's right. Because you may be roaring in the cave of your heart, but if we are not willing to, to access the cave, we may not be hearing mm -hmm. the roaring, basically. So, well, and where was he born, right? Mm -hmm. Where was our beloved Krishna born? Mm -hmm. But in a, in a jail cell, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's also this... That's a wonderful image, mm. powerful image mm -hmm. of of opposition that um, that the the Lord of the universe would would incarnate and where would where would he go? He would go into a jail cell. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I feel like you know there's there's this wonderful pattern we're meant to follow. Mm -hmm. uh, enter the cave, enter the jail cell, uh, find the and to surrender and then find freedom, then find resurrection, then find whatever symbol you want. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I find that those patterns are very mm, present in a very cohesive way throughout cross traditional, no, cross not yeah. only in our particular tradition, yeah. the very birth of Jesus is in a very mm -hmm. humble place. No, not in, not in any fancy, like a here. Yeah. Here he comes, or whatever. <laughs> but but threatened by Herod, just the same way Kamsa is threatening Krishna. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this incredible pattern of of uh, something new is being born on the earth, and something old doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's something old in me that doesn't want the new thing to grow, mm -hmm. and that 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 battle between the old and the new uh, is got to be worked out. And that's where I think that's the messiness. That's where beauty. Beauty is born from that battle, mm -hmm. you know. That's the Krishna is born from that. Uh, the beautiful one mm. is born from that battle. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It always reminds me of Thomas Merton saying, and I may have repeated this quote like three thousand times already, but it shows so, so many meanings in so many contexts. He will say, "Our salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of our daily life." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. In connection right. to what you just mentioned, no, like the battle, not battling, but the de dealing with messiness and improper entering into that messy, ordinary space, and you can come reborn, death reborn, and with a uh -huh, new gift yeah. to offer to to the world and, and and in your own heart. But but yeah, there is no way but to go through through the messiness, which many times, as we already mentioned, is to. I always also remind Father Richard saying we generally advance more by doing it wrong than by doing it right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, he says that beautifully. So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Patrick, there is one comment here that was sent by 
friend of mine, Bhaktirasa. Let's see, she's inviting us to. She says, yeah. "Can you please, can you please speak to surrender as being an opening in love compared to a sense of wrestling, an external, an external force to do something I don't want to do." Kind of. I think mm. she's, there are a few words that I think need correction, but generally she, she's inviting us to talk more of surrender as an opening in love in contrast with sometimes the idea of surrender, like I'm wrestling with something or like I have to do something I don't want to do, but I have to surrender. I don't have other option instead of a more voluntarily, voluntary opening. Ah, I see. Yeah, there's a love. kind of, yeah, there's a contrast between those two approaches uh -huh. of, yeah, because I, I, I guess I, my in my own story, I guess I'm giving you both that I was wrestling. I was, I was, I was uh, revolting against what God was willing for me, mm. which was to stay in a cave, mm. uh, to remain in a cave, and and let myself not advance out into the world yet, um, versus the surrender that I was meant to do. I think it's because it's a messy process, it's going to look like both things. You know, it's going to be looking like a revolt and a wrestling and then a surrender. But then a like, oh, no, a sort of your ego asserts itself again. Uh -huh. it, there's a kind of a backing and forthing between a voluntary surrender versus a revolt uh -huh. until finally the part of our being that wants to to grow um, wins. And the part of our being that doesn't want to grow um, surrenders and loses and <laughs> it has to lose I think in Sufi poetry you read a lot of this about um, the beloved win winning mm. and the, the devotee losing I mean mm -hmm. a, a wonderful story of this is Rumi you know um, I don't know if, if folks know this but you know he he was an incredibly successful theologian in the in his context and um, uh, his master shams of tabriz was a god realized master i guess you know and they were spending a lot of time together hmm. and they used to play chess and rumi always lost he always lost and shams of tabriz was always and, and they're both i mean rumi was like i guess a really intelligent man and would somebody you would think would be able to win a chess game hmm. but he always lost to shams of tabriz and finally one day uh uh shams says checkmate and uh, I think uh, this, I might get the story wrong, but Rumi puts the, the, the playing, the, the little piece down and says, well, you won. And at that point is when, I guess in the symbol of putting that piece down, it was like a symbol of surrender. It was mm. like, okay, I lost. And at that point, you know, Shams saw an opening and he, he touched his forehead or he kissed his forehead. Something happened. He gave him a touch mm -hmm. and he said, no, you won. Mm. And he gave him God realization mm. at that point through this touch. But it was it was the culmination of these incredible years of losing. Mm. <laughs> um, and and you know, a kind of a backing and forth. And I guess when I read, you know, these incredible teachers and, and spiritual figures about how they gained their illumination or their God realization or however people call it, um, it was a it was a wrestling. Mm. that led to a surrender a voluntary surrender that led to a gift a grace that was unbidden that no one earned but that you know there was a there's a process that got to that point i think of jacob and and god wrestling in the bible we just re we're reading that with my students now mm. 
you know, it's really, and he gets wounded. Like, it's like there's you, you wrestle with God and you're going to, God wants to wrestle, I guess there's a, that's sort of part of the press possible, but then you get to a point where you're marked with this wound and you're, you take that forward. I think that's a mystery. I think that's interesting to talk about, but I don't know. I think your question's so beautiful. I just think both aspects of the wrestling and the, the voluntary surrender in love mm-hmm. are two sides of the same coin and there's no getting around um, those two sides. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I, I was reflecting up? on that and I, I will agree with you. I was reflecting about different, as you mentioned, there are different forms of surrender to every part of the journey. So each one of those forms of surrender, at least during certain stages, will also include their corresponding form of wrestling and voluntary acceptance. On some level, then you accept, then you wrestle a little bit, but still accepting and still wrestling and, and so on and so forth. It reminds me of the Bhagavad Gita also in the very beginning oh, when, when yeah. Krishna is telling Arjuna to battle uh he yeah, starts to, yeah. arjuna starts to battle but with krishna basically that's <laughs> right that's right the yoga of despair leads to the yeah, yoga with <laughs> yeah yeah the yoga so he starts uh-huh. to argue and present arguments not to surrender basically <laughs> that's Till right it comes this famous verse but he says mm-hmm. i surrender to you i'm your student so there is Such a point. A perfect you know? story, yeah. And, and that's the beginning of the Gita so forth. So he, the Gita very clearly depicts how the, the very initial chapters of our, of our surrender process will be some little wrestling. And, and Krishna is generous. God is generous enough as to taste taste some rasa in the wrestling. It's okay. No, he, it's right. It's a yoga so, of despair. It's like there's an actual, there's a process to this. There's a mm-hmm. real process yeah. and a real sacred quality to wrestling yeah as and there still, is as you mentioned yeah. that still the word yoga is there in the chapter no it's not that yeah. it's only called vishada or despair it's vishada right. yoga, yoga. Yeah. No? so there is a way to link and to bond and to connect and that means there is there is some reciprocity in that wrestling stage so i think it's healthy for practitioners to see it like that so they don't feel that their wrestling is just you are rebellious and you are not wanting to surrender and this is you're against god no some, sometimes That's they right. want self you can self whip yourself so to say self loading and to That's right. learn to accept and understand okay this is part of the surrender process it's not just i give myself fully no that's also a part but also to reach that point in a substantial way there may be some necessary wrestling as you pointed to and and again, right. Krishna is putting that into the equation of, of, of right. that type of yoga, so to say. No, that's right. I, it's like who's stimulating this despair? It's it's Krishna himself. I think ah. you know. It's mm-hmm. like uh, you know, God doesn't want us to reach. He doesn't want automatons. He wants us to surrender with full-throated cheerfulness, full-hearted cheerfulness, and you don't get that without facing the shadow within your heart and, and, uh-huh. and surrender and, and giving that honestly to Krishna and, and, and saying to him, I really don't want to do this. I'm not going to. <laughs> and yeah. then it, when you voice that, you admit it there, but behind it is there is this, I think, commitment 
to transform it um, and, and to commitment to be it, it being transformed. You're sort of laying it at the feet of Krishna in order for it to be transformed. Mm-hmm. So I think he wants that honesty. He wants that. Um, doesn't want us to sort of pull any punches because he's not pulling any punches. He's punching us pretty hard, I think, in life. Mm. And so we don't need to pull any either. Mm. Um, and I don't think those punches are that he's giving us are are anything but love. And in Sufism, uh-huh. we kind of talk, talk about the master gives us the kiss or the slap and both uh-huh. are blessings. We will say the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we will say the slap is a special mercy, so to say. It's even better, right? Because it, it, it can really advance you. Yeah. And, and also because that's a symptom of that there is some intimacy and confidence because you won't slap anyone and everyone. So to say sometimes the example, no, I slap you, I'm, I'm demonstrating, we are close enough for me to slap you, so to say. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. One of Meher Baba's, um, his, he had many disciples on both hemispheres, mm. Indian disciples, but also European ones. And he brought um, a person from England to live with him his name was uh, William Donkin, and he was a doctor, a medical doctor, and um, he was sort of a newbie for a little while there, and he was observing how Mayor Baba treated his uh, in- Indian disciples, and he was hard on them. He was really brutal, scolding them, slapping them even. He was brutal, and he and Mayor Baba treated him, uh, this European person, with sweetness, kindness, love, and William, I mean, Bill, Bill Duncan, he was just like, got a little annoyed, <laughs> which kind of, it just, you know, expresses his own maturity. Cause he's uh-huh. like, wait a minute. He's never hard with me. He's always kind with me. Does he not love me? Mm. <laughs> he got to that point mm. and he, in his journals where he's talking about that. And he finally got scolded one day by Mirababa and he was so happy. <laughs> he was just like, so our, our teachers, our Mershids wanted us to read his diaries because of his maturity. I think because he understood Mm. the Mm. intimacy of the master with the student leads to these kinds of interactions that can lead to real, even more incredible growth, uh, timed and, and, and personal, but yeah. Yeah. Which of course I just clarification for some of the audience with with this, we are not promoting any form of masochism. Like I want to be not at all, not at all. Because sometimes in between there may be, Unfortunately, in some dynamics between guru and disciple situations of uh, actual abuse or, or mistreatment. Correct. Uh, and that's not, ex- externally may look similar, but internally it's not the same. In some cases, it may be. Thank you for, for saying that. No, no, that's it's right. okay. I, yeah. I assume everyone will get it, but just in case, brief clarification, right. because it can be tricky because externally may look exactly the same. And if you have gone through some sequence of, abuse or whatever when you see a, a yes. genuine a genuine form of that due to your own trauma so to say or, or layers you may project that and think oh again here's something like that and maybe it's it's not that at all but that's right that's right and i think we in the west too we were, i think we're just learning what what is a guru how does uh-huh. a guru student relationship uh what does that look like and um we're still <laughs> grappling with that i think it's it's new to us so I'm so appreciative of you mentioning that. No, no. That. Thank yeah. you so much for, for mentioning that. Because, again, in our tradition, that's part of it. The slapping is there, <laughs> whether yes. from the guru, from God himself, as we mentioned. But, but providing but, that the student is, is in a position that 
he can also understand this lapping as mercy and and and. and that's right, and as a as an act of love, yeah, really, as yeah. a where the and the, and also I, I've noticed too that the kiss can feel like a slap. The kiss itself, if it's a beautiful oh. sort of gesture of love, where you feel completely embraced and accepted, understood from the bottom up, hmm. that can be really disorienting and feel like <laughs> I don't want that because no one's given me that before, and that's traumatizing. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. I've had that, you know, where the the the, the Mershid gives such love and acceptance and understanding, and you're just like, oh, I don't think I don't have a place to, I don't know where to place this. I don't know how to hold this. It's too much. Too much. It's too much. Yeah. You know. Yeah, too disconcerting. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah because just, un- unconditional love is always too much by definition. Yeah. yeah but yeah. so the point is how we we yeah we find ourselves in a place that, despite it's too much, we can deal with that without running away from that because yeah, yeah. It, it demands from us total nakedness basically no? yeah I mean, it, it nakes vulnerability us. Yeah, yeah it puts us in that particular situation recently we were in, in some retreat with a few friends and one of them expressed so such a deep vulnerability that for the rest of us there was no option but to enter into that same space <laughs> Vulnerability brings forth yeah. vulnerability. You know, there was no place to. Okay, she's vulnerable, but we can remain non-vulnerable here. There was no. It was, or, or we become vulnerable, or we jump out of the window or something. Like that. <laughs> That's right. Fortunately, yeah. nobody jumped out of the window. But but yeah, it, as we talked, yeah, a few months. In, I think that our first podcast in this series, and we were talking about sexuality and how much, how many times people is terrified about actual sexuality because that demands yeah. real vulnerability and real right. nakedness on every level that's of, right of the sense so it's not something so simple and so easy and that's why people turn to sexuality in a more exploitative and superficial way without really going deep culturing emotional intimacy and all that it actually entails so yes and somehow that has to do with today's topic, which is again dealing with mystery. <laughs> and yeah, culture, I was just thinking, yeah, and remaining naked in front of that, and willing in front of that, and and understanding that, as as we say in our tradition, Hari Bhagati Kutilava, but love moves in a crooked way like a snake. So it's ah. it's unpredictable. We cannot never know what will happen next. So we are we remain naked in front of an unpredictable mystery so that requires some some courage to say the least <laughs> that's oh gosh yeah yeah i don't know i don't have the quote in front of me but mayor baba um sort of taught his disciples that marriage could be um or the, the intimacy of marriage can be just another path to to god realization to, and that because of the the incredible opportunities for for different le- levels of love that you can explore with your partner mm-hmm. um and the mysteries of those levels uh, are there that, you know, with one touch of the master, you could get God realization because of that marriage crucible, hmm. you could say. Yeah. That's been yeah. my experience too. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that you mentioned before we went live, you were speaking about how your marriage is part of your sadhana, basically. So the yeah. two, I, I really appreciated that integration and, and, and putting everything inside it. I mean, potentially everything can be, an aspect of your sadhana. 
That's right. Yeah, Aurobindo said all life is yoga. And I think, yeah, that's right. I mean, so all the things we've been talking about, I, I should be mentioning Audrey because my wife, Audrey, has was my partner in every uh -huh. one of these things, every part of these, uh, uh, the sculpture project, my void afterwards, my my desire to be, um, uh, well, it, to follow my, my the wish of my Murshids to be a, a tenured professor, which is what I'm doing now hmm. in, the, in theology and religious studies. She's been my partner, at, you know, every step of the way. Hmm. Um, and such a, and it's been difficult because we have different ideas about how these things should happen. And, hmm. you know, we have got to talk about finances. We've got to talk about you know, whether or not we have children, which we decided not to, you know, early on, for instance, uh -huh. um, you know, how do we negotiate living apart right now? We've, uh -huh. the, we're living apart for a year and we've done that before. And there's a mystery to that, my goodness. And the mystery, and I, I spent four years apart from her doing the sculpture project. The last four years we were, we were apart. Huh. And, um, I don't know. It's just, again, the, the idea, the, the growth that happens through that opposition has been so profound and mm. fast. Mm. You know, I think the growth, we, we, it would have taken hundreds of years, but now, you know, with these oppositions that we've encountered individually and together, it's pushed us uh, forward in, in lovely ways mm. together. Yeah. 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 yeah, I was thinking about what you mentioned about how your wife also accompanied you through your different cave chapters, so to say, and so on. And sure. I was thinking about, yeah, how when we are in, in these deep, dark places, so to say, not as something negative, but just deep, dark places, in one sense, it's so much about how we deal with that individually, but also how important it is to have life partners and companions that somehow or other can empathize with what we are going through you know? because yeah. you are alone you are by yourself in the cave but in another sense you need others to accompany mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. somehow to shed some light so that witness yeah 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 because yeah yeah we, we doesn't take away our own responsibility in the cave but yeah sheds like somehow yeah. on, on our duty in the cave, sends us back to the cave to do our, yeah. our karma there. But yeah, I was just thinking about that in my own personal experience. And all the times that I've been in the cave, of course, it's very clear. I need to enter this cave by myself. I cannot just try to bring the whole world with me. Because if, if everything that is outside the cave is brought inside the cave, it's not the cave. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm still in the same place, so to say, you no, know? because sometimes that may happen. Okay, I, I notice that I'm being invited to the cave. So let me bring this and this and this person and this thing. So everything inside the cave looks exactly like what's outside the cave. So uh, I've never yeah. entered the cave. So so I, I, I really feel when the call for the cave is there, okay. The the least thing I have to I can take with me, I have to. I will have to go as naked as I can, but yeah. Nonetheless, it's good to have those well-wishing voices sounding. Even yeah. when we are inside the cave, some voices coming from outside the cave reminding us, That's remain right. in the cave, it's okay. I'm outside the cave doing my thing. I'm okay here. You remain in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's it. Mm. We need those voices. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Patrick, one, one idea I was thinking... What, what will you say, especially from your own experience, probably maybe in connection to the Sufi tradition, 
we are speaking about mystery as an art, as a living art, uh, in connection to God himself, God as a mystery. Um, I don't know if there is any thoughts you have in connection to how Sufism approaches the notion of the divine as mystery, mm. One, one's relationship with the divine, the role of mystery in it. Uh, we, ourselves, yeah. we ourselves as mystery even on some yeah. level, etc. Yeah, yeah. I think um, we've been talking about the Sufi perspective so fully, um, but I wonder if, yeah, if there's a way to hone in on it more. Because um, I think uh, the Sufi understanding, at least, you know, I should probably say to our listeners, Sufism, to most people's imagination, it is the mystical tradition of Islam. Mm -hmm. And Mayor Baba teaches that actually it's wider than that, that Sufis have been around since the dawn of time that they have been connected to a, a world teacher and are meant to uh, take that teacher's message and their teaching sort of to try to live it uh -huh. in the world as a vanguard or, you know, w as a help to creation. And um, so there were Sufis for Zoroaster, there were Sufis for Krishna and Rama, uh -huh. Uh -huh. for Jesus, for Muhammad, um, and so, um, and for Mayor Baba, we, we think of him that way and uh, celebrate him that way. And so um, the teaching is always the same, but there's, I guess you could say, he, Mayor Baba says that the teaching also changes for the times. So uh, I think this is in Hinduism too, where you see, uh -huh. you know, different yugas need different teachings. Uh -huh. So bhakti becomes, you know, much more important, for instance, in the Kali Yuga. Hmm and um more stripped down just uh it's so difficult this time we need just kind of god's name hmm. just preaching god's name and that's something that mayor baba was very clear about just you know pick god's a, a, god, a name of god and, and and chant that 30 minutes a day and hmm. and we are meant to also look for 15 minutes a day on top of that um a picture of of any guru we want um that could be our own gurus or, or others and so every day we do that to enter that mystery. Um, wow. That's the only rituals we, he gave us. He's like, I, I don't want any more rituals. I don't want these Sufi rituals of the past. I'm getting rid of those. Wow. Now it is only this name of God and to then to live it. He's like, and so I don't know if people might not know, Mirababa was silent for 44 years. He wow. began in 1925 um, being silent. And it, he said it wasn't for his own sadhana. He, he's like, this is for the earth. This is for the cosmos. I'm going to be silent. You're, you've been given all the teachings you need. It's time now to live them. Hmm. So I've come to awaken, not to teach, is what he said. Hmm. So he remained silent from 25 to, to his death in 1969. And so I think this, our Sufi community really links mystery to silence and hmm. his silence and what he meant by silence. And so I think it's going to be the, the, the accomplishment of or the, the agenda of my scholarship really would be to write about this silence and to yeah. continue making sculptures about it. Because I think my sculptures are about it, too. I, I make these empty forms. They're hollowed out and empty. Yeah, yeah, it's totally. And for me, that, that is really the mystery. It's sort of sculpting mystery. It's sculpting that silence that's at the heart of all, all creatures. <laughs> And 
but he, he said he would break his silence too. That was also something, a part of his message. And, mm. and, and Baba lovers, people who are followers of Mir Baba ask, what does that mean? And I think there's not agreement about that, but our, our, our Sufi Murshids have been very clear that that breaking has to do with the, the, the actual dissolution of the boundary that separates the gross planes our mm. gross plane that we see with our senses and breaking that boundary and the boundary and, and between this world and the spiritual planes, the, the subtle planes and the mental planes and let, letting that spiritual energy rain down onto the earth because of the breaking. Mm. And uh, so the mystery of those spiritual planes is now raining down on earth in a way that is, it's an opportunity for growth of all creatures and people. And so um, I think from, we celebrate that in our Sufi programs, our music, our, our celebrations we have through. And that's something you can go to our website to see, you know, some of our music and uh, drama, drama performances and stuff like that. Hmm. So I think our, the arts are so important, actually, not just to me personally, but to our order to celebrate the, the mystery of his silence and the, break, hmm. and the breaking of his silence hmm. and what that means. So, yeah. Yeah. I, re I really appreciate that you invoke the notion of silence because it's so tied to the idea of mystery. Today I was talking with a, a friend of mine, a practitioner, fellow practitioner who has an ashram. I, I'll be visiting his ashram in a few days in the Alps here in Switzerland. Ah, wonderful. And, and they always do silence retreats many times a year and, and he just ended one a few days ago and he was expressing to me how yeah. how important he finds these periods and these experiences and, and and how much in our particular community that's not sometimes emphasized enough although interestingly Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita for example and I quote that in my book he will say of among all secret things I'm silence I know I love that I remember that quote beautifully yeah. Yeah, yeah chapter 10 he said among all secret things i'm silence yes so i, I try to make that point in, in the book that silence doesn't mean uh not only silence not it's not so much about not speaking but also about hearing actually you know? stop yeah. speaking so we can like be more present and aware and, and, and learn to listen and and how God speaks through silence as well. Not, yeah, not necessarily like right. he, he speaks in silence, but he speaks through silence. That's um, right. Um, and, and, and I really, I, I, re I feel really, uh, at least on some level, more and more comfortable with this situation of being in silence and not needing to say too much because we have so many things to say in particular in our tradition there's so much information so much theological detail so we could be talking and talking and talking and there you can never say enough but also there is a point where we have to <laughs> let That's silence right. speak for itself which is again non-different from krishna in our tradition silence for That's us right. mean krishna he's speaking now let's hear so and, and again, right. we are not comfortable with silence. No? Sometimes in conversation, mm -hmm. in our daily life, if there is some silence, we have to fill the gap quickly. <laughs> yes. Because I've been playing with this with my students at the beginning. I've, 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 wow. I have them put their phones away, their earbuds, their computers have to go away. We have to just be silent for just two minutes. Yeah. 
I have a 50 minute class, so it's a very short class. So two mm. minutes is, but it's, it, I'm finding it. I've, I've never, I've wanted to do it. And now I'm finally doing it with, with them. And it really helps me to then when I do speak, I feel like it's coming from a different place than, than if we hadn't together or gathered our, our, our presence and been, been silent together for, for a couple minutes. So, yeah. Yeah, we, we part in our tradition many times, at least one of the moments where we are silent, in some cases when we are eating, for example, like having lunch or something, yeah. not always in some places. So it's a, like a very important moment too. Again, mm. so many things are happening. Sometimes we may think silence, nothing will be happening. It's so boring. Oh, no. Nothing, it's so... nothing to do. But actually, you start to... So to, filled. <laughs> yeah. You start to measure the level of, as you mentioned, of content that is present in, in the whole of reality. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Hmm. One th thing more that comes to mind... I think we are already reaching the close of our conversation, Patrick, but I remember sure. the other day when we were organizing for this particular episode, we were talking, uh, we already touched upon that in the beginning, but I would like to invite you to share a few more thoughts, especially from the traditions you are familiar with regarding how you, I think you use this expression of opposition as, as fuel for progress, basically. Yes. You know? Which again oh, has the yeah. idea of mystery because opposition is, What's opposition, basically? You know, probably something that we see as opposition because it still remains a mystery or we don't know what actually is and so on and so forth. So oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking that it's so important to uh, yes to learn to de decrypt this this particular yes. Instances. So anything, any oh, thoughts yeah. in that connection? No, opposition this is progress. Yeah, opposition fuels growth is a central teaching in our Sufi tradition, our Murshids constantly remind us about this. Mir yeah. Baba constantly did. And the mother of the Sri Aurobindo ashram. Um, and I'm teaching the Bible now to my yeah. students and I'm look, and I've made the opposition fueling growth principle, the principle I want them to met, to notice as a part of every biblical story we've been reading. Cause I, mm. you can see it there. It's amazing. Well, like all and, pervading themes all throughout pervading. All Oh my gosh. I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's yeah. a, I think it's a new way to read the old Testament and yeah. the new Testament because I was teaching the, the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana at, at, into my, in a Hindu course, I was teaching a couple of last year. And I used that principle there too. I said, you're going to find this principle filled throughout mm -hmm. these two texts and these epics. Right. And I, and my students got it. But it, I, I think it really, it, I, whenever I bring it up and I try to explain it without art, it leads to opposition. <laughs> <laughs> People are opposed to the uh, principle of opposition fueling growth. I mean, with, whether it's Hindus, whether it's Christians, whether it's people who aren't practicing, I think there's, we know it's true. We know that mm -hmm. we grow through opposition, mm. but we also don't like it. Uh, there's, it's a crude means that God is using to mm -hmm. manifest his perfection. It's an imperfect means to manifest perfection, wow. I guess, you know, mm -hmm. that it's through ugliness. It's through that we get beauty. It's through violence that we get to nonviolence. It's mm. through hatred and suffering. We get to love. Um, it's through life that we, um, death that we get to life. Um, but that, gosh, when you read any master, whether it's Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, I'm sure Gaudiya, 
tradition masters, you're going to see this as so important. Mm -hmm. Even, um, yeah. So, so what is it? I mean, I, I guess it's just like, I, I tell my students, you see it at the, at the level of weight training where you're trying to strengthen your muscles. You're, you're lifting weights that are, that are too strong for your muscles and you rip the, you rip the tissue in, in your muscles. Mm -hmm. That's on purpose to rip those, those tissues and then you rest them. And then those tissues grow back stronger. Mm. I think God's doing that with the cosmos, with COVID, with the social unrest, with the war in Ukraine, with climate change. I mean, all of these things are so difficult to manage. I think these are, these are difficult processes of opposition that we need to be more conscious more and living out the principles of our traditions with more love, more cheerfulness, more surrender. To, mm -hmm. to be able to allow those tissues to grow back because the violence is so extreme. The, the divisions are so hard. The everything is so extreme right now, intense. Um, so our practices have to be equal to the task. They have to be more intense. Um, but that's going to strengthen our patience and strengthen our generosity, strengthen our goodness, strengthen mm -hmm. our love. Because the, the opposites are so forcefully in our face. We've got to meet them. We've got to meet them with incredible love, incredible integral love, integral beauty, integral hmm. everything. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. those yeah. are initial that, thoughts. Yeah, thank you. That reminds me one of my teachers. He will say that opposition increases harmony, basically. Yeah. I mean, that that's mm -hmm. the, the ultimate the ultimate purpose of opposition is to take take us to a place where a greater degree of harmony has to be invoked so opposition stops being opposition basically yeah. so we can integrate and, and heal no like bakteras is quoting here that is something that i also share in my book no like it is through our wounds that we are healed that's right no? so so the importance of embracing that open wound, so to say, as, as the doorway to redemption, basically. Yeah, which Instead is of, who gave us that wound, and I think it's God. And you know, mm -hmm. and Jacob wrestling God, he gives, he he wounds him, mm -hmm. and and he he limps away. Jacob does, mm -hmm. and that wound becomes the very doorway to his his uh, advancement and his growth. Mm -hmm. And um, and of course, you're in France there, and what does blessé mean? It's mm -hmm. a blessing, but blessé means to wound in French. Mm -hmm. um, I tell my that my students that, and my actually my my teacher Mershida Connor, when she was alive, she she was talking about this very principle of opposition fueling growth with us in 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 a small company of people. And she looked at me and she says, you know, what does blessé mean in French? And I had been studying French because of the mother of the Sri Aurobindo ashram, and I said, well, it means to injure, to wound. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. How cool, you know, what a cool principle. But then she she gave me a scolding right after that about some know. other topic. And again, we're going back to like, uh, I had the intimacy. I had the, the, the very many years of being her student that she could be this, she could give me the slap. Hmm. But it was like she was teaching me about blessing and she was teaching me about blessé to wound hmm. at this not just through words, but through actually her scolding. <laughs> so I walked away from that meeting like, whoa, I really got a lesson on that. Um, so, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I really love your combination between... I, I didn't know to begin with. I'm in France, but that doesn't mean I'm already familiar with the local language. So I appreciate your introduction to, uh -huh. to that unique word. If I can only learn that particular word you have mentioned, that, that will be enough for French uh -huh. in this lifetime. No, the injury and the and the blessing at the same time, mercy, aggressive mercy, so to say. <laughs> uh, Very forceful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, reading behind that, the how to say the urgency in which God God's love wants to be conveyed and extended. No. Yeah. So so how that nature natural overflowing will take different forms that may feel for us like overwhelming or even aggressive, but don't, not losing sight that from which source this is coming, which is the intention of the source, so to say. No? Yeah. So at, yeah. At one point, the form that it takes will be in one sense secondary as long as it is coming from that source and we can appreciate it as such, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So thank you, Patrick, for your thank word. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't know if you would like to share some any conclusion, any final thoughts, something that you may like to share that we forgot to talk about, or anything <laughs> that comes to your mind to to give grand finale to the. Yeah. Meeting. It seems like I think you did it. This was such a grand finale to to talk about opposition feeling growth. I'm so I'm grateful for the whole conversation. I'm grateful to 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 I'm grateful to Jeff Long for introducing us. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future and visiting you in North Carolina. Yeah, that's my yeah. pleasure. That's that's my yeah. hope as well. So thank you so much, Patrick. And again, I will share again the link for those who would like to know more about Patrick's work. Here it is again. For those who are listening only, it's reunionstudios.com. So one more time, thank you very much. Yeah. And next episode still i'm about to confirm the exact date but probably will be in 10 days because of the availability of the guest and the guest will be adam buko so he's a christian priest uh, this month of september i'm inviting different practitioners from various traditions and adam buko is the one who co-authored the book of new monasticism with rory mckenty who came recently to my podcast so probably i will be sharing the news soon but probably we'll be talking with him on September 26th, which will be on Tuesday at 10 a.m. EDT time, but I will be confirming it soon. And the title of our episode most probably will be Let Your, in connection to what we were just talking with, uh, with Patrick, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. No? Uh, and that's in connection to a book that Adam published recently. So we'll Wonderful. be talking there on the role of compassion. Uh, and social activism that he is quite engaged with in connection to prayers, to prayer among other different topics. So that will be our next episode. So anyhow, thank you so much to you, Patrick, again. Thank you so yeah. much for all the ones connected. And well, hope to see you very soon. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much.